Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. All right, well, come on in. I think the kids are all checked in. James is gone today, so you get the B team today. I'm Tyler. Uh, I was setting Finn's post this week, and um, I was nicknamed Eye of the Tyler. So just anytime you want to work that into your conversations. Uh, No. All right, let's pray, and we're going to get started. Jesus, we thank you for um, our meeting today. We thank you that we can meet together as believers, and we just ask that you would show us what you're trying to say this morning. We want to hear it and we want to respond. Amen. All right. Well, I got to tell you that a couple weeks ago I had an opportunity with a couple of the guys from Renewal and um, just some buddies. We, we kind of on a whim got some Mariner tickets at the last moment and went up to the Friday night game a couple weeks ago where the Mariners in the bottom of the ninth inning, listen to this, it's one-to-one, in bottom of the ninth inning, Cal Raleigh hits a walk-off home run. Two outs, three balls, two strikes, last opportunity, and hits a bomb into the upper deck uh, to send the Mariners into the postseason. And so you may notice Brady's got his Mariners gear on this morning. Josh has his postseason hat. Josh and I were... Um, actually getting our hands slapped at the table in the Mariner store after the game because we were, like, grabbing hats as fast as we could. There were, like, this long line, and Josh and I just kind of walked around the line and just grabbed hats from the guy. But um, I got to tell you, seriously, probably one of the coolest sporting events I've ever been to in my entire life. Like, Mariners fans have been waiting 21 years for the Mariners to get into the postseason. Each hero was a rookie the last time they got into the postseason. So, like, the stadium just erupts, and it was really an, an amazing moment. I, I feel like in, in a lot of ways we witness history, and just, like, this, this home run is going to be replayed over and over again in Mariner um, just fandom and for the rest of time. And, and we were there, right? It was a big moment because we were there. Yesterday, the Mariners won the wild card to, to put them into the next round of the playoffs. And so, like, that was pretty exciting. I was watching it on TV, but it wasn't really the same. I mean, being in the stadium and being a part of that energy, I got to tell you, it's just like it's something that will, will remain in my memory. I'm not a big hat guy. Like, I'm not probably going to wear this hat all that often. But I got it in a, in a sense to, like, commemorate this event. It'll, it'll probably sit in my office collecting dust. But I'll look at it and remember, like, just – the guy in front of me that I didn't know that was hugging me and almost kissed me on the cheek. Like, I'll never forget that event because it was just like this big dramatic moment and um, it, it meant a lot. I, I think, you know, places and being in places and, and, and having these big dramatic events are important to our memories. And, you know, there's actually like a lot of study about this. I was watching this brain show one time. And they were talking about how, you know, there's actually people that compete, believe it or not. They give them like long, long lists of numbers and they compete to see who can recall the numbers. So they'll let them like read this list for an hour, a couple hours, whatever. And then they come back and see who can recall these long, long lists of numbers. And you're just thinking like, 
of course there's people that would do this as a competition. That's so bizarre. But what I thought was interesting about this is the people that go through these um, these memory games or these memory competitions, the, the way that they remember these long lists of numbers is they tell them, like, one of the grid strategies is actually to create in your mind sort of like a, uh, a path that you go on all the time. So for, for me, it would be like the path from my house down to Kelso High School, right? Because I drive my girls there, um, uh, a bunch of bunch of mornings, right? So, so like on that path, when you get to the end of your driveway, they say create a story for yourself around that number. So like, imagine if I was to get to the end of my driveways and I wanted to remember this this long list of numbers, I would say there was like four elephants at the end of the driveway wearing five gold necklaces. It's 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 something that in your mind, like it's so absurd that your your brain would would process that information and not forget the information. And then maybe as I get down to the stop sign at the end of our road, um, you you might see like nine wizards holding six pieces of candy. Like you, you kind of remember this, four elephants and, and, you know, five gold chains, nine wizards holding six pieces of candy. And then as I go down Mount Brynion, I get to the bottom of Mount Brynion and I see two monster trucks with the number seven on the side, right? two monster trucks with the number seven on the side. And then I, as I make my way down into Kelso High School, I see three clowns just jumping up and down, throwing a party, right? So how many of you guys could recall that number? It's pretty easy, isn't it? Four, five, nine, six, seven, no, two, two, two monster trucks, seven, three. It's amazing how, how you can take a number that long. And all of a sudden, because, like, you've created spaces in your mind, and I'm sure that that road isn't probably as memorable for you, but I could literally picture at different places on that road where these absurd things are happening. It's a way for memory to get kind of, like, pushed down into something that becomes not just short-term memory but even long-term memory. And it's it should be no surprise to us that God would use important geographical locations and big dramatic events to tell stories like this in the Old Testament. Things that are absurd, things that don't really happen every day. God would use places that the, the people of Israel would go to often or land or, or um, geographic location that they were very familiar with, and he would make big monumental memories in those locations. Think about the story. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? This is not a story we forget because it's a story about a guy that's like has to have a really awkward conversation with his wife that he's heard from God. He's going to take his son up this mountain, Mount Moriah, and he's going to sacrifice his only son that they've been waiting on for quite a while. In fact, th that story is kind of funny in and of itself because they didn't really wait. Um, Abraham had a servant. It, it, that's a whole other story. But anyhow, so they've been waiting on this son for a really long time, and they go up this mountain, and you can only imagine, like, the conversation between Abraham and his son, like, hey, Dad, where are we going? Like, oh, we're going to go up the hill to make some sacrifices. Oh, that's cool, Dad. We've done that before. Like, where's the sacrifice? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it later. Just come on, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out as we go. And you guys know the story. Abraham gets up Mount Moriah, and he's like, just about ready to plunge the knife into his son, and God provides the sacrifice. This is going to be a memorable moment. I mean, I, you're not going to be Abraham years later 
and forget what God did on Mount Moriah. That's, that's going to be something I would think, I mean, I would remember if I was about ready to stab one of my, my children. Like, I would probably remember the location. I would remember the event because it's a big, awkward thing that you don't experience every day. Israel told that story for generations and generations. It was something that would, would stick in their mind. Mount Moriah was a place that would stick in their mind. Remember the story of, of Moses going up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments? You might have seen the Ten Commandments. You know, you might be familiar with these, right? It's a story that gets passed down for generations and generations because God does this big extravagant thing and, like, carves these ten laws into stone tablets actually twice because Moses gets really mad about it the first time because the people aren't following and kind of, you know, breaks him. He had a little bit of a temper issue. And then God does it again. So anyhow, so you've got these, these laws written into stone tablets. It's something that Israel's not going to forget because God does something really extraordinary, really big at this mountaintop. And so now, again, a place and an event that's going to be like kind of stuck in Israel's mind, stuck in their history for a long time because this big dramatic event was something that they would tell their kids and their kids' kids and, and even us today were, were able to be beneficiaries of this great story because the story was passed down. It was something that was very memorable. Um, a more obscure story that, uh, honestly, I had to look this one up a, a little bit, so like, if you don't remember this one, it's okay, but after... Um, the, the people had fallen away. There was a story of, of Joshua where um, God kind of recreates or like reestablishes his covenant with the people. And there's a mountain called Mer Mount Gerizim where God on that mountain would say, like, I want you to bring and like establish the blessing that I that I gave your people in recreating or reestablishing the covenant amongst your people. I want you to to come back to Mount Gerizim and, and, and create a memory of uh, a memory of the blessing or a memory of the uh, covenant that I'm making with Israel. This mountain, you know, becomes a place where it's important to the people of Israel. It's important to their heritage, important to their memory. Uh, probably the most significant mountain, if you're not catching the theme so far, <laughs> that God does like really big things on mountains is is the mount uh, the the mountain called Mount Zion, right? It's in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, there's a um, Stevie. You guys could probably I don't know, she left the room, but you guys could probably tell us a lot about that. That Stevie and her husband actually live in in this region, but there's a there's a Temple Mount that sits on on Mount Zion, and it, at that location, this is this is the place where if you remember. David is instructed to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. There's this big celebration. We're bringing the Ark back to Jerusalem. We got it back from the enemies, and we're bringing it back here into this space. And God is going to establish Mount Zion as the place that literally holds the presence of God. Because the Ark of the Covenant is going to be um, this, this symbol or actual physical representation of the presence of God and God is going to ask the people of Israel to build a tent there. He asked David to build a tent there. And then David's son Solomon, you guys may or may not know that Solomon is the one, Solomon is the one that is going to build the temple in Jerusalem that's going to house the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And it's going to be the literal place where God's presence is going to come and 
encounter Earth once a year. Super cool. And God gives Israel all of these rules about, like, when you're making these sacrifices, I want you to do it here. I don't want you to do it in the, in the surrounding regions because Mount Zion is going to be an important place. And I, I don't want you to forget. It could be easy for us to look at that story of, uh, of making sacrifices in Jerusalem and think to ourselves like, oh, yeah, you know, God just wants to make sure that people are going to be obedient. Or he just wants to make sure that people are going to follow the rules. But I have a tendency to think because, you know, we have the advantage of, like, reading the, the whole story, the whole book of the Bible, and being able to see the bigger picture and look at it in the past. We're not living those moments in the present. We can look back over those stories and go, what was God trying to say? And what was he trying to do in these big dramatic moments, in these, in these big important places? What was he trying to, to do in these things? I think that there's a theme here, that God uses mountains to tell big, important stories that he doesn't want us to forget. Last week, James introduced the story, in, we're, we're in John chapter 4 um, in, in our series, and he introduced the story last week of the woman at the well. And here's what we know about the story of the woman at the well, is that Jesus makes a point to go through Samaria. Why is that a big deal? Well, because... The Samaritans were, in, in essence, they were Gentiles, but they were kind of like half-breed Gentiles. So if you're a Jewish person and you're like really into your heritage and you really believe that salvation comes to the Jews, it's kind of an important thing to be a Jew and you're not supposed to like intermingle with other non-Jewish people. Well, the Samaritans were like half-breeds, right? They were the ones that had, the Jewish people had intermingled and then they'd created a whole people group called the Samaritans. And, and so, like, Samaria becomes this place that Jews avoid. It's like, ew, Samaria, right? Ew, gross. Like, that's not where we go. And so, when, when Jews would make their journey from the, the southern regions of, uh, of that area up to, like, Galilee, they would actually make this big point to go around Samaria so as not to be... Um, around people that were unclean. And so last week, James starts into this story, right, for the, for the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan, and Jesus makes a point to go through Samaria on his way to Galilee. Well, he meets this woman in the middle of the day, which is not typically a time where people would go and draw water from the well. So we know that Jesus is meeting a woman at, at a well who's a Samaritan, um, not really supposed to be there for a variety of reasons because as a Jew, Jesus doesn't want to, like, be unclean. He doesn't want to be around people that are unclean. And so, like, the whole thing is just, it, it's just not where Jesus is supposed to be. So we pick up the story in John chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus said to her, um, so he's already talked to her about, like, um, you know, what, what she's doing at the well and this, this whole, like, well is Jacob's well and, and you get the history. But we pick up the story when he says to the woman, Jesus says, go call your husband and, and ask him to come here. And the, and the woman says, uh, I don't really have a husband. And uh, Jesus says to her, yeah, you're right in saying you don't have a husband. In fact, you have had five husbands and the one that you're with now is not your husband. And and what you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Uh, you, you seem to like kind of be dialed in. Um, not only do you know about my 
misgivings, but like you, you seem to be really knowledgeable. And um, so she takes this opportunity, like instead of being embarrassed, I just love that like she's like, hmm, he seems perceptive, you know, like um, she goes, hey, I got a question for you. So I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Our fathers told us that we were supposed to make sacrifices and worship Yahweh Like, because there's still an establishment of these people being the people of God. Um, They saw themselves that way, even if the Jews didn't. And she goes, my my fathers have always told us that we're supposed to worship at Mount Gerizim. And your people are like all about Jerusalem. You're all about Mount Zion, you know. So she basically says to Jesus, like, which is the right mountain? Which is which which is the right place to do the sacrifices. So here she is, like, perceiving something about the person that's sitting next to her. And, and really, in the moment, what she wants to know is, who's right? Is it, is it you or is it us? Like, and, um, yeah, it, and it's just this kind of, like, really awkward moment. And, and Jesus answers in the way that he often does, right, with with just sort of like this bigger story, and um, he doesn't really answer the question directly, but he goes, you worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And she's like, yeah, so which mountain are we supposed to worship at? Right? I mean, it's just like this big, long, convoluted answer. And, and of course, if we're like students of the scriptures and we can read this story looking backwards, it's easy for us to kind of go, oh, yeah, I think I know what he's talking about here. And, like, I know the stories from the book of Acts. And I know the, the things that are going to happen next. But imagine you're this woman sitting at the well and you just asked Jesus a pretty a pretty basic question like which is the right mountain and he's like oh yeah time is coming and is already here that worshipers will worship in spirit and truth and she's just like all right thanks man like not as perceptive as I thought you were but no um in other words Jesus is about ready to change the narrative these places that are like incredibly important to people, right? These mountains that that obviously God has done some really big things that, that have meant a lot. These, these geographic locations where God has established really big dramatic events, those have been really important to not just the Jewish people, but in this case, the Samaritans as well. And they have established their sense of being and their sense of worship to God off of these geographic locations. And, and, and Jesus is about ready to change the location. He's about ready to change the narrative. See, high places are extremely important in the Old Testament. So important, in fact, that when God would instruct, you know, Israel to go and take over a land, in, in a lot of cases, you, you see the Israelites going to fight, fighting battles against the Canaanite people. And every time they would go and, like, overtake a land, God would say, go to the high places, find the idols, the altars, the, the, the high points of these places, and I want you to tear down the high places. Why? 
because at, in the high places is where they would make their sacrifices. That's where they would offer worship to their gods. And so <clears throat> clearly the high place, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, God's telling this story about where you're going to make sacrifices on a mountain, right? On a hill, the high place. And he's trying to establish this concept that this is where you do this. This is where worship happens. And so when you overtake a land, it's really important that you go to where it was a false sense of where that was happening. And I want you to tear those things down. Why? Because we, because we hate these people and we want, we want to tear down the history. No, because I'm trying to tell a story about where worship is centralized. Where my presence is going to be. And it takes, you know, a long time for these stories to kind of get into Israel's, you know, who they are, right? But it becomes so important that even as Israel's like exiled from their lands on more, more than one occasion, like there's a great lament that happens in these people because imagine being taken, ripped away from the place that you uh, feel like this is the only place that I can really worship and make sacrifice. Like being ripped away from that sense of location and geography, like that's a big deal, you know, to, to have worship taken away from you. But because God was trying to establish that places of worship uh, weren't supposed to happen to other gods in high places, that just didn't really jive with his story. So the woman at the well was referencing the importance of Mount Gerizim to her faith and the importance of Mount Zion to the Jewish faith. But Jesus, even though he was a Jew, was saying salvation is from the Jews. And in sense, the whole Old Testament, which taught about salvation, was for from the Jewish people, not the Gentiles. And yet, here he sits with, with uh, a Gentile or a Samaritan woman, and he's revealing this new covenant, this new idea uh, of, of, of a story that God is going to reestablish and a place in which worship is going to take place in spirit and in truth, is what he says. These stories that were burned into their memories, experiences that the people of God had with the very presence of God on top of holy hills. Journeys the people of God would take to get to these places every year. Imagine, like, if you don't live in Jerusalem proper, if, let's say you're, you're living in Galilee or in Nazareth or, you know, some of the surrounding areas, like, these are a long ways away. I mean, a couple hours by car, but you're going to travel every year, like, as your family, just walking <laughs> with, like, hundreds of people. I mean, those would be important trails, wouldn't they? I mean, you'd remember things. It, th those things would be, like, ingrained in you. Like, it, you know, it, it, did you ever go somewhere as a kid over and over again, like a campground or something like that? Like, you have these memories that are ingrained in you because you did it repetitiously over and over again. So imagine for the people of Israel growing up, as a little kid, like making this journey all the way to Jerusalem every year so that your family could make sacrifices, right? I mean, these would be important things to you. And now Jesus is sort of like tearing down these constructs of these places that have been so important. He was declaring that now instead of people going uh, up, up, up to these holy hills to experience the presence of God, that God was going to come 
down, down, down by sending his spirit to meet with his people. Instead of traveling to a mountain to, to worship God, worshipers would literally be the place where the presence of God would find a home. That worshipers would no longer worship at Mount Zion, but they would worship in spirit and in truth. So the woman hears this and she goes, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. So, you know, when he comes, he'll tell us all these things, she says. Um, and Jesus says to her, he goes, I am the one that you are speaking about. This is a big moment, okay? This is one of the first times he reveals himself as the Messiah to someone. There have been many occasions where, like, the disciples maybe are thinking, I think this is the Christ, I think that we found the Messiah. But, like, Jesus is revealing himself for one of the very first times as the Messiah to who? A woman? You're not supposed to do that. Like, to a, a Gentile? Nope, not good either, right? This is significant. And... And here he's kind of unfolding this big story to somebody that really, from the Jewish perspective, is undeserving to be receiving this information. So how and why was the mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, going to change? Keep in mind, the same hill, listen to this, the same hill that, that Abraham took Isaac up, right, Mount Moriah, the same hill that he, he brought his son up to be sacrificed is the same hill that uh, David is going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to. So pretty important location for the people of Israel. Um, it was just outside the walls of Mount Moriah, right? The, the Temple Mount is kind of sits on Mount Moriah, and it's, it's, uh, there, it, there's kind of a lot happening in that geographic location. But in that same area, right outside the city walls, the, the, the gates of the city, is where they're going to take Jesus to be crucified. So Mount Calvary, Jesus is not going to be crucified at Mount Calvary because they wouldn't have done that inside of the temple walls. They wouldn't have done it inside the, the city gates. So they would take people outside to be crucified. And so just outside of the walls of the city, this is where Jesus is actually going to be taken to be crucified, a pretty important location to the story. And I just think it's so significant that, like, God went to all of this length to, to, to say to Abraham, this is way before, like, the people had made it into the promised land. Keep in mind, Abraham is, like, part of a nomadic people. They're just, like, wandering around. They don't have a place. And he goes, oh, go up this mountain. Take your only son. Make him the sacrifice to me. And that seems weird, right? That seems big. It seems dramatic. It seems like something you won't forget. And then, you know, hundreds of years later, he says to David, go and get the Ark of the Covenant. Bring it back to this place, this mountain. Bring it here. I want to establish my presence here. Why here? It's not that significant. I mean, no offense, but hills in, in, in the Middle East aren't like, they're not the mountains like we have here, right? I mean, it's just like, they're just a little bit higher than the other <laughs> parts of the landscape, right? And he's going, right here. Right here. Why here? Because I'm trying to unfold a story to you. 
That for God so loved the world that he would send his only son. That whoever would believe in him would not die, but they would have life and life forever. A story that's, that's, that's actually like written into their history right here is where Jesus is going to go. And he's going to be the sacrifice. He's going to be that, that ram. He's going to be the, the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. Starts making sense then why Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. What does this language sound like? He's empowering them. Everything about Matthew chapter 5 should say, like, I am the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. But he doesn't. He looks at the disciples and says, you are the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Like what city? I don't know. Like maybe Jerusalem, right? This beacon of hope to the rest of the world that for all of existence, God is trying to establish a story where the temple would be this place where people would come and, and people would be united together again as, as hum- humanity, right? They've been torn apart, separated, and God's wanting to establish that this temple is for all men and all nations and all peoples, right? But it wasn't that. And so God himself comes to that location and says, yeah, by the way, I know that this is a big, powerful looking temple. And I know it's like where people come from all over the place to make sacrifices. I'm going to tear it down in three days. But I'm going to rebuild it again. You see how the story is starting to kind of like make sense? He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? What does that sound like? Jesus has reestablished this. It's not the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Jerusalem. It's the Spirit of God wants to live in you as the physical place. The Holy of Holies where no one was allowed, only the priests once a year. You're the place. The veil that kept a separation between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple, only one person, go back. I'm tearing it about. I'm going to tear it apart. You're the place. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, but you literally house the presence of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Consider this. God has established that his very presence, his spirit lives in us, and he went to great lengths to tell a story where he would be the sacrifice where you would get something that you didn't deserve. Just like Abraham was given a sacrifice at just the right moment. I love, too, that I'm just kind of putting this together in my mind, but Abraham received a sacrifice just at the right moment, and 
I think it's Paul that says in, in the New Testament, at just the right time, Christ died for us. So we could worship God freely, right? Not just being saved from our sins, not just so that he could wipe out sin and death for all time, but like literally creating access to the presence of God for us right now. Not just so we could live our life free from sin so that we could go to heaven and live in eternity, but so that the presence of God would be active and at work in us right now. That's a privilege. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So I encourage you, go be the light of the world that the world needs to see. Because what was missed in the temple, and I love the temple stories, but what was missed in the temple is that it was intended to be a place where the people of God would reunite humanity to God himself, and it failed to do that. So we serve a God that says the only one that can really do that is me, <laughs> right? That's why I came. That's why I died. That's why I'm the sacrifice, and that's why I did it right where I did it so that I could reestablish that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 